everybody. This is Chris. And Kathy. We wanted to take a minute to thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate every listener and are grateful for this platform. Please help us share our vision by subscribing to our show through your favorite streaming app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. Check out our ever-growing list of affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. And be sure to use our promo code PETPOD22, that's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, on checkout to receive your discount from our affiliates. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Alon Landa, CEO of MedcoVet, and I'm a proud sponsor of Petability. We decided to partner with Chris and Kathy because, like them, we want to empower all pet owners who are trying to do the most for their pets. At MedcoVet, we specialize in advanced home laser therapy for pets. Laser therapy is a safe and effective treatment for common conditions like arthritis and wounds, and it relieves pain for most conditions caused by inflammation. With MedcoVet, pet owners can perform this treatment at home while receiving support from experienced clinicians. If you think your pet would benefit from healing at home, visit MedcoVet.com, and one of our clinical experts will work with you to determine if home laser therapy is the right fit for you and your pet. Tell them PetAbility sent you. Welcome to PetAbility. I'm your host, Kathy Simons. And I'm your host, Chris Cranston. Our podcast provides interviews and information to help your pets live their best lives. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing today? And a fine morning to you, Kathy. I'm doing really well because I know what's coming up. I I know. Well, listen, (laughs) I know. You have been so generous in letting me take uh, the limelight in not just one podcast, but two, two podcasts. And so finally, my friend, it is your day to shine because we are going to be interviewing you today, or I am going to be interviewing you today about the similarities and differences between PT for people and PT for animals or physical rehabilitation actually for animals and how it translates because it really does, doesn't it? It really translates from one to the other. Yes, I, uh, it was actually my brother-in-law who suggested, he doesn't even have any pets, Kathy. And he <laughs> said, I love listening to your podcast because I learned so much about me and what I should be doing that Chris, you do a fantastic job of making analogies between the pets that you're rehabilitating and people. And so, for example, warming up and cooling down and, you know, all of those basic things that apply to, to really anything. But, you know, people and our dogs and cats, you know, the other, we're all mammals, right? And so right. we can we can all benefit from the same thing. So he actually suggested this topic. And then I finally got brave enough to to ask you. I'm glad you did, because I think that people can relate to that, especially when we're saying things like, well, you know, imagine if you lost, you know, the range of motion in your knee. Think about how that would be for you to climb stairs. And so they can, oh, Mm. yeah, yeah. you know, so I'm excited to talk about this and how it how how it translates between physical, you know, 
physical therapy and physical rehabilitation between animals, because I think we can all relate to that. Mm-hmm. And I think you're the perfect person to do that. You know, I think that we had talked previously in in probably our first podcast about a collaboration that we've had now going on for probably 20 plus years. Chris is one of the most talented rehabilitationers, uh, rehabilitation practitioners I've worked with. Oh, and that's why, I always, that's why I hooked my wagon to her star, <laughs> because uh, of how talented she is and probably now, one of the hardest people I've ever met. Kathy, uh, Kathy, Kathy yeah. I have to interrupt you here because mm-hmm. now you're, you're setting this up and people are like waiting with bated breath. I don't want them to be disappointed. So let's, oh, let's manage expectations and just hope, hope you enjoy the show. Chris is the worst. So there's your, Chris is the worst. Uh, so I think you're the perfect person to talk about this with, honestly, because of your experience with treating people and, and treating animals and your talent with treating animals. And, you know, I, I, um, I'll tell you a brief story about uh, when I was going through CCRP school and I was in the very first graduating class. And so in those days you had to do, if you were a technician or a veterinarian, you had to do your rotation, your externship with a human physical therapist. And I almost died. It was awful. You know, with this, I was going to say the owners, with the client's permission and, and, you know, supervision from the physical therapist, I treated a woman's foot. Yeah, people usually find feet kind of disgusting. <laughs> it was a nice clean foot. She had good, you know, she had nail polish on. It was a nice and clean foot. But I was like, well, what do I do with this foot? And then I just was like, you know what? You apply everything that you've learned about animals and what you would do if they had a, you know, a sore foot to this woman's, you know, treatment. Um, and it worked out okay, but it was it was a little scary, but it, it translated to me. It translated, mm. what would you do if this was, you know, a dog with a foot or a toe injury? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I made it through and it was, but it was difficult. <laughs> I can't well, ironically, a lot of my career as a physical therapist was in sports medicine. There was a huge population with foot problems because of, mm-hmm. you know, running and jamming their toes into the little rock climbing shoes and things like that, because I was in Colorado and, and the student population there at the university where I was working, uh, you know, did like five activities a day or they were slackers activities, meaning high level sports activities. So, you know, I did a lot of orthotics and things like that. So I've seen more than the average person share of a feet. That's for sure. (laughs) And fortunately they don't gross me out. So, well, that's great. Chris. Good. (laughs) Let's just jump right in and talk about how your, your transitioning careers, how did you transition careers? And it wasn't really a big leap, right? No, um, it wasn't. I, I moved across the country from Colorado to New England, and I thought, well, this is a, a chance to maybe do something a little bit different. And I didn't know what that was going to be, but I was gravitating toward working with elderly people, which was vastly different from uh, the, like I said, the young student population at the University of Colorado or animals. I, that's kind of the two directions. And, and I thought, you know, let's really shake it up. Let's see what there is in the animal world. And fortunately for me, they were just starting the certification program through the University of Tennessee. And so I kind of went whole hog, if you will, yeah. and, uh, you know, took, took my first class. I was hooked. Then that's when we met because I volunteered at the facility that you were managing. And the rest, they say, is, is history. And, uh, you know, I think certainly my skills as a physical therapist it was just applying those same principles to a different species. So the PT part made total sense to me. That was, that was not difficult. What I needed to do 
is learn the differences, focus on the differences. And of course, I'm used to people that could give me a quote subjective report, right? What's uh-huh. hurting? Where's it hurting? And now I'm working with animals and it was actually kind of a little bit easier because one of the things we say when working with people is quote, don't taste pain. Pain can be a liar. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, where the pain is, isn't always where the problem is. And with animals, you have to look at it very objectively. And so that was kind of a relief for me. Uh, the other thing is, is, you know, just again, the, the body language, the communication, as I alluded to, but also just the, the differences in anatomy, the differences in disease processes. And there were a lot of similarities to my surprise. I mean, the anatomy differences between a human and a pet are very few, really. And a lot of the disease processes are similar, but if they're not exactly, we could make an analogy to the human side. So that's what I focused on for the certification that it wasn't a big, big leap for me. So I felt fortunate. I think, and you can speak to this, Kathy, I think for a lot of the veterinarians, you know, basically, you know, the animals on that side, and I certainly don't, but learning a, an entire profession, if you will, can be challenging. And I think that's why our collaboration has worked so well, because you know so much about, you know, handling and different species and the disease processes and the anatomy. And I, you know, fortunately knew the, the PT part. So we're both learning from each other on the opposite side of, of our, you know, profession. Right. And I think that that is, I think that that actually makes for a perfect marriage when you're looking at a patient. Who do you have on that patient's team, right? Who does, who's on team Matt? You know, his veterinarian, his physical therapist, which is Chris, and his veterinary technician, which is his mother, right? And we bring, we all bring something a little bit different, right? We all bring something a little bit different. And sometimes I'll bring up something that you hadn't thought of. And sometimes you'll bring up something that I'm like, hey, I never thought of that. And I think that just makes for overall better treatment of of patients. Oh, I agree 100%. And you know, when people, you know, look at me like I have three heads and they're like, you do what? And I'm like, you know, I'm a physical rehabber with, with small animals. And <laughs> again, talking about the similarities, I say, you know, well, have you had PT? And they're like, yeah. And I said, did it help? Yeah. And I'm like, well, don't you think that that might help your pet if, you know, they hurt their knee or they're getting arthritis? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So generally, because they're always confounded about what we actually treat. And I say, if, you know, anything that we can treat on the human side, we can treat on the animal side. Right. And once they start thinking about it, I'm like neurological issues, cardiac issues, obesity, certainly orthopedics you know, challenges. So it's just a matter of kind of pointing out those, those similarities, and then they get that aha. The aha moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you say that working with animals, Chris, does it liken anything to maybe what it, like maybe at pediatrics, given the nonverbal and watching for or communicating in a nonverbal sense and watching for what the patient is telling you? Well, absolutely. And and I've never done peds um, because I thought it was terrifying. And so mm-hmm. when I learned about treating pediatrics, you know, in PT school, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much responsibility. I also didn't enjoy uh, neurological issues on the people side, but that is what I'm gravitating to 
with, huh. with our animal friends. We had a, a colleague, Betsy, that we both work with, and she was certified in uh, pediatric physical yeah. therapy. You know, I think she's the first one that pointed that out to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, you are so yeah. correct. You rely on the parent, whether it's the pet parent or the child's parent, for the subjective telling, you know, what is wrong, kind of filling in those gaps, helping with that communication, what are their observations. And then again, because the child, as you said, may be nonverbal or, or unable to exactly articulate, you really have to be observant and mm -hmm. look at those objective signs and, you know, getting to the, the root of, of what's wrong. The other thing is we never want to do something noxious, right? We can't communicate to a, a toddler like, you know, I'm going to put this needle, you know, in your arm and it's going to sting a little bit, but it'll just be a second. I mean, they see that needle coming toward them and it could be terrifying. And based on maybe a past experience, yeah. you know, with a needle or a previous vaccination or what have you. So, you know, in the pediatric realm, you know, they do all of these things to, to make it so positive and fun and the experience of going to the, the pediatrician or the physical therapist that may be working with them, you know, all these toys, you know, the bouncy balls and, and uh, you know, playing with things and having to grasp and move and lift, that's all physical therapy, but they just think they're having fun. Right. We do that same thing on the animal side in terms of trying not to make things noxious um, right. to the best of our ability, making it a positive experience because you can't, again, explain the the potential, you know, consequences. And and I think you've said, Kathy, if, if I get a, a cookie every time I do something great and people start cheering, you'd work really hard uh, as well. So our dogs definitely uh, enjoy and they think they're just having a blast when we take them through these, quote, games and, right, and right. such, right? They have no idea they're actually performing an exercise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have no idea. I think the the reading the body language of pediatric or, or young children, you know, babies and toddlers is very interesting to me. And I wonder, I wonder if I could read the the nonverbal behavior of a of a small child, much like I do with with dogs or cats or or birds. And and is there a similarity in in facial expressions and and body language? Oh, I think so. Um, you know, many many of parent to a little human has told me, you know, they can distinguish their cries, right? Is it because they're hungry? Is it because they need their diaper changed? Is it because they are tired? You know, we know in our world that the pet parents can distinguish, you know, the various barks. You right. know, is it because somebody's outside? Is it because they want your attention? Is it because, you know, something is uncomfortable? You know, whatever it may be. So, as, you know, their parents, whether it's people or, or pet, you know, I think they're the, the number one advocate, right? And, right? and kind of doing that communication piece between their charge, you know, again, whether it's a baby or, or a puppy. And, and what they do at home is so, so important because when a parent brings the, the pet into the clinic, they may act completely differently. You know, the, the adrenaline's pumping, you know, they're masking their pain, whatever it may be. So you list, listeners out there, um, you know, we really value, you know, what you tell us and taking pictures, taking videos, because right. what they do at home and what you're interpreting, you know best. So don't, don't, yeah, minimize that. And not, not dismissing what the owner mm -hmm. says, you know, not dismissing yeah. like, oh, she didn't take her cookie last night. Well, 
maybe there might be a reason for that. So I don't want to dismiss anything that they say. I want to take that all in. Right. It could be very meaningful. Yeah. yeah. It could be Looking very at the meaningful. Big- and as you said earlier, the team, you know, so yeah. the pet parent is definitely part of the team and uh, the vet and the rehabber. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say one more thing. Yeah. Uh, when we started out, Kathy, the, the whole career profession mm-hmm. of physical rehabilitation for animals was pet parent driven. Right. Uh, you know, we right. really had to advocate what we could do with the veterinary community because it was a new subset, a new profession within the veterinary realm um, at that time. And, you know, people have been doing it, you know, quote, on the side and, you know, because they saw the need, but to formalize it. And then even after it was formalized, demonstrating our value, you know, showing that there were better outcomes, that, that the pets were getting better faster. And it was those pet parents that were calling you, were calling me, and realizing, you know, my dog's limping. Is there anything we can do? I've already taken them to the vet and they said, just rest him for two weeks, but it's not working. They're still limping. Right. So right, right. the next step was, you know, the, the physical rehabilitation. Right. And I can't thank the pet owners enough for that, really. Mm-hmm. It is client owner driven. And sometimes still, even within our profession, you know, maybe colleagues or other veterinarians who still don't refer to physical therapy and owners are pushing for it. And yeah. then they, they will send And then when they see the, when the vet sees the benefit of how great this pet is doing, especially our senior pets, when they're, you know, they're losing their balance or losing strength. And then you start to see how well they're doing um, and picking up their toy again, and maybe going for a little walk again. I mean, that, that sells the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that these animals are engaging in things that they, that they enjoy and that, the, mm-hmm. that they're engaging in things that the owner and they can do together. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. When you, see, you see that you can't deny it. Right? And Kathy, you mentioned you were in the first graduating class. Was that in 2000? 2000, it was either 2002, 2003, I think. Yeah. And fortunately, in that time, it, it the physical rehabilitation has become much more a standard of care, though. You know, I remember back in the day, you know, I'd have to write letters and explain who I was and so forth. Mm-hmm. And now I'll request a referral. And they're like, yep, great. Go for it. No problem. Have, yeah, because they <laughs> yeah. have, you know, many times realized our value. Like you said, there's still some challenges out there. Yeah. But, and I, I also, you know, people have heard us talk about physical therapy and physical rehabilitation. And I, I want to make that distinction. Physical therapists use the term physical therapy, and it's a protected term. When we're working with animals, the certification programs have deemed physical rehabilitation to be more appropriate because that encompasses all the players, including the non-physical therapists that are performing rehab with the animal population. So the vet techs and nurses and the vets, as well as, as the PT side. PTA, yeah, PTA. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're kind of, you know, juxtaposing those and, mm-hmm. and so forth. But I just wanted to, to mention that as well. So it's, yeah, it's the same, it's the same, yeah. but just a matter of semantics. I'm glad you cleared that up because I think in almost every podcast we refer to ourselves as rehabilitationists or uh, rehabilitation therapists, mm-hmm. um, and that is definitely different from the protected term of physical therapist. Yes, although I, because I am a physical therapist, I will use that. You can, um, <laughs> yeah, I can. Hey, Kathy, I do have a, a funny little story to tell because this was all so new, you know, yeah. 20 years ago. Uh, I remember talking about rehab they say you know what do you do and I said oh I I do rehab and I still get this and they're like 
oh my gosh, like my dog can get addicted to their, their <laughs> drugs. Like you do rehabilitation, you know, like AA or NA or something. I'm like, no, 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 no. Or, or behavior, you know, a lot of behavioral rehabilitation, like mental health issues and, and things like that. And not to minimize that, but I didn't have to clarify, mm -hmm. uh, you know, no physical. If I yeah. leave off the, you know, the physical yeah. part, say I just do rehab, it gets confusing to, to the average uh, person that may not have been yeah. exposed to it. You know, yes, yeah, so you're going to get a call. You know what, Chris, my cat is hitting that catnip just a little <laughs> too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know. that's a, a, a that program for that. Yeah, I think so. Well, why don't we go ahead and move into what the anatomy differences are between humans and between your human patients and your animal patients? Sure. And, you know, I'm sure there are some that I'm not familiar with in terms of, you know, organ sizes and, you know, positions and things like that. So I'm going to, you know, stick to the kind of skeletal and muscular anatomy. And there were just a few things that I found fascinating as I was learning more about um, our pet friends. And, and I'm going to basically, most of my population tends to be dogs. You know, I'd say a good 99%. Uh, you, I know, have the luxury of treating many other species. So basically, these comparisons are, are going to be between our canine friends and, and humans. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that dogs do not have a clavicle or a collarbone and they do not they do not but people do and I know this very well because I've broken mine three times mm -hmm. and sometimes people are like how, how did you do it three times you only have two collarbones I'm like well two on the right side one on the left but um yeah so I guess dogs don't have to worry about those clavicular fractures yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's just a, you know, like a, an evolution thing. I have no idea, but I just thought that was really interesting. And I told this story before. I went to the University of Iowa and there was a wrestler there that was born without collarbones. And he was very good. Obviously, he was competing on a national level and a lot of the wrestlers from Iowa go to the Olympics and so on. And um but I think because he didn't have collarbones, he could really squeeze and twist and, and move around and get out of those holes. So the other thing that I found was interesting is the hamstring of a dog is very, very important. Um, we think oftentimes about the quadriceps in people, our thigh muscles on the front. In dogs, I feel like the hamstrings on the back of the thigh is really significant. And it actually goes from the rear end where their sit bones are all the way down to their ankle. Whereas in people, it stops just below the knee. So I just, again, thought that was interesting, a little bit of, of trivia there. And my final comparison has to do with the, the pet's forelimb. So I mentioned before that their anatomy is very similar to ours, so they have a biceps and a triceps. So the biceps is on the, the front of your arm, you know, when you do your 12-ounce curls, right, and, uh, and get big guns, if you will, uh -huh. and the triceps is on the, the back. Well, because pets are quadruped and we're bipedal, I think that, again, evolutionarily, things have switched up a little bit. So by the name, biceps, we have two muscle bellies on the front, triceps, three muscle bellies on the back. Our dogs have uh -huh. only one bicep, so it's a complete misnomer, 
<laughs> and four triceps. So I'm thinking maybe as we became more upright as humans and started doing things with our hands, that we needed more lifting muscles. And so one of those muscles of the triceps actually migrated around to the front to allow us to be stronger, to be able to lift, to be able to throw and so forth with our arms. Whereas our animal friends are, are basically in a quadruped position and what we call closed pain. So their feet are down on the ground. So they need those triceps to stabilize them, prevent the elbow from bending, support the shoulder girdle because they have so much weight on their front legs, 60% in a, in a perfect world versus 40% in the back. So, well, Chris, this leads me to another question about some of the differences. I mean, can you, can you talk about the biomechanical differences in your humans versus your, your pet patients? Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I hope this isn't getting uh, too technical because, you know, I like to geek out on, on this stuff. Um, but yes, I alluded to some of the biomechanical differences. Basically, you know, they're quadruped, we're, we're bipedal. So when you say quadruped, you mean all four feet, Oh, yes, right? I do. And when yes. you say bipedal, you mean two feet. Two feet. Okay. Yes. yes. So, you know, it, it's interesting too, because people will say, um, my dog hurt its front knee and they don't have a front knee. They have an elbow. So their forelimbs are like our arms. And their back limbs are like our legs anatomically. And so that's a very good point that you make. So quad being four, they're on four feet. And we're biped, we're on two feet with arms and hands. I do tend to juxtapose those a lot with, with my pet owners. You know, I'm like, oh, his hand is sore. You know, because again, they can kind of, you know, appreciate, um, you know, what I'm, what I'm talking about there. Right. Right. But because of them being quadruped, I, you know, I already said that like their shoulder girdles are much more pronounced. They are putting a lot of, of weight and stress. And basically those shoulder blades, their scapula are sliding. They have the ability to slide on their rib cage. So they need a huge muscular support system to be engaged, to keep their front limbs where they should be when they're walking and running and jumping. And the front legs are basically our stoppers or their stoppers. You know, if you're, if you're running, if you're going downhill um, to keep your body from going forward over you, yeah. you're going to, you know, you're going to use those shoulder muscles. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> and in the, the patient population on the human side, for that reason, we saw a lot of shoulder dislocations. It's a ball and socket joint, and we don't typically have a lot of muscular development around our shoulder girdles. And so the act of, I remember one patient I had, he simply reached up to like in the old days, like turn on the dome light in his car or mm -hmm. something yeah. and dislocated his shoulder. Oh my God. So, you know, these very benign everyday activities, you know, can cause that. Have you ever treated a, a dog with a shoulder dislocation? I've never had a dog reach up to turn on a dome light. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, but we see hip dislocations in dogs. You, you often, most often see uh, hip dislocations. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a shoulder right. dislocation. Yeah. Right. So we're much weaker, you know, up top. They're much stronger in their, in their front. And then it's rare to get a hip dis dislocation in a human, but uh -huh. rather common to get a, a dog dislocation. Right. 
just again, based on the, the anatomy and the musculature and, and so forth. Another fascinating thing, and we both talk about this a lot, Kathy, is the fact that dogs stand on their toes and that's <sighs> called digigrade. In their back feet, they're actually, their heels are not on the ground. That's the first little bone you see in the back. That's their heel. So it's like being in a stiletto all the time without any support. So, you know, they're standing up on those toes and in the front, their, their wrists are off the ground. You know, if we go to do a push up, our wrists are down or our hands are flat. So um, our feet are plantigrade and there's a digigrade and that can cause a lot of uh, potential problems in terms of, you know, think about all the little bones in your hands and feet which have correlating ligaments that hook bone to bone, tendons that hook muscle to bone. So again, similar across species, but just based on the fact that they're up on their toes, so much more potential for injury in tearing a ligament or, you know, avulsing a tendon or what have you. So. And those middle toes, those are the, those are the weight bearing toes. I mean, if you think about it, those toes have a lot to do those middle toes. Yep. It's a lot lot of work. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we always talk about traction and, um, you know, giving our, our pets every advantage, you know, nail trim so that they're protecting those toes. And you, you just can't minimize that. I think so many pet owners don't really think about their pet's toes and feet as much as they, they could or maybe should. Yeah. And I've been traveling recently and I, I returned back to work uh, yesterday after about a month. And out of the four patients that I saw in their home, two of them needed nail trims. Right. So that just, you know, 50% um, right. were in need of nail trims and I was all over it because it's so, so important. This is a great time, Kathy, to bring up our fantastic sponsor, a dog's best life box.com that has enrichment kits designed to not only entertain, but also tire and fulfill your dog while creating an unbeatable bond. If you're thinking about getting a subscription or a one-time box, Go to a dogsbestlifebox.com and use that promo code PETPOD22. That's P-E-T-P-O-D 22 to get that 10% discount and the special gift. Which is a fantastic treat pouch. You want to talk a little bit about, about the cruciate ligament? We've had many pet owners say that, that their dog got the ACL. Got the ACL, yep. And you know, and more power to them. I mean, at least they're, they're listening, you know, to the vet and things like that. So they're hearing that, you know, it's like, what's wrong? What brings you into the clinic today? Well, they have, you know, ACL. Well, the truth is that they have two and in the dog, it's called the CCL or cranial cruciate ligament, ACL in people, we do mix and match, but I'm sure many people use the term ACL because they've heard it like in the sports world. And so, right. They can relate it to themselves. Yes. And, and it is part of normal anatomy. So when they're saying that their dog got the ACL, what they mean is that it has torn. And that is a very, very common injury due to their biomechanics in dogs. So again, we tend to think about a sports injury, a skier that catches an edge or a football player that gets, you know, hit in the knee and they tear their anterior cruciate ligament or ACL. In dogs, it tends to be more of a wear and tear process based on anatomy, physiology, and so forth. So oftentimes when it when it fully tears, it's kind of like the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. It may have been a process that's going has been going on for a long time. And then 
tears. And historically, that owner may have looked back and said, yeah, I remember like two years ago, they were limping, you know, for a few weeks, but then it got better. And then, you know, six months later, I remember they were limping again, but it got better. And then now this time, it's just not getting better. And so they tore some of the fibers of their cruciate, and then a little bit more setting off an inflammatory process, and then maybe finally fully tore. And that's because that ligament is so important for keeping their shin bone under their femur. And with every step they take, a dog takes biomechanically, they are putting a stress on that ligament. Mm -hmm. And if their knees or stifles are really straight, there is more stress. So, you know, that's, that's something that, that we can, you know, maybe hedge. I just had a, a consult on Monday with a, a pet owner who got a new puppy. And I think the puppy's about seven months old. And the veterinarian at the initial exam said, you know, that Aurora is kind of loose ligamented. Mm-hmm. And there's really nothing that can be done. That's just who she is and so forth. So the owner reached out to me and said, is this true? And I said, eh, I tend to kind of disagree. So I started them on some very low impact body awareness, strengthening types of exercises because I did see that Aurora does have very straight stifles. And I warned the owner, I said, mm-hmm. you know, she anatomically may be set up for a future cruciate ligament, ligament mm-hmm. injury. And I thought that was my duty, you know, so that mm-hmm. she could you know, manage her activities and do things like warm-ups and cool-downs. And yeah, yeah, exactly. To try to prevent, so. Can, let me ask you this. Do people get uh, intravertebral disc disease like dogs do? Does that happen in people? Well, absolutely. The the big difference is people don't become paralyzed, whereas Uh, dogs can. So, I mean, we know that Back pain, I think, is the number two diagnosis to mental health. Um, so mental health is the number one currently in, in the United States, and back pain is number two. Wow. I right. think that in our pets, back pain is often ignored. I think when they do have back pain, we assume it may be a disc, but there's also mechanical back pain that can be due to you know, a pinched nerve or something not articulating correctly. And again, that's where a skilled therapist can try to discern and, you know, do certain techniques to to maybe help that. It may not actually be a disc, but intervertebral disc disease, as the name implies, means that it's a, it can be a, a sudden explosion of the disc between the vertebrae and bruise that spinal cord significantly and lead to paralysis. Or it can be a different type of wear and tear process. Dehydration typically happens in older pets and causes a, a compression, which then affects the nerves and is, is painful. Um, when it happens suddenly, uh, surgery is often indicated to decompress to prevent that paralysis. Um, when it's a gradual wear and tear, we tend to treat it more conservatively like we would in a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very similar in that people with, you know, they say that get sciatica, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. that's pain down the back of the leg. And that usually stems from a pinched nerve, a nerve root in the lower back. Again, our animal 
patients can't tell us that. Right. Um, they can't say that their leg is hurting. And the reason that they're limping is not because of a cruciate injury, but actually it's emanating from their right. back. So, right. you know, our, a, a very thorough musculoskeletal exam is important. And I, and I think to the defense of the veterinarians that are seeing, you know, dozens of pets yeah. in a day, different yeah. species and so forth, they can't know everything uh, and, and discern that in the snapshot of time that they have in an exam room. So having the wherewithal to then refer to the musculoskeletal experts, right. i.e. the rehabbers, to, you know, figure this out over time. And I think that's one of the, the perks is that we typically see the friends of in our pet world on an ongoing basis, right? right. We may see right. them you know, once a week, twice a week, three times a week if we're lucky, but at a minimum, maybe every, you know, two to four weeks on an ongoing basis. Um, we also do home plans with right. the pets. So the pet parent executes a home plan. And it, it's as much what not to do right. as what it is to do. So I think a lot of times when people hear physical therapy, they think, you know, exercise, exercise, exercise. And that is just one yeah. small yeah. facet of of what is done in rehabilitation um they may think use of machines like ultrasound e-stem uh in the animal world using hydrotherapy again one facet right. i think that where we really find is again the use of our hands our observation skills and our education to the the pet parent on what to do or not to do i.e the home right. plan so it doesn't even, you know, I don't say home exercise plan. I should say home plan. Yeah. Um, what do you think we, about that? We, yeah. And we're assessing, I think that there may be a misconception. I'm not sure, but there may be a misconception. Yeah. That if you, that animals that come into uh, rehab uh, are going to exercise, 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 but that's not necessarily true. Mm -mm. Some dogs maybe yes, but no, everybody's an individual. I have to assess your home life. What surface do you live on? I have to assess your mental status too. Are you feeling, is that pet feeling depressed or anxious? Um, is he having, what's his cognition like? Is that dog having cognitive problems? You know, and then I also have to help, we have to help the owner. Does the owner need help getting the dog up? What mm -hmm. kind of harnesses are going to help with the dog? Does the dog need a wheelchair? What kind yeah, of wheelchair? What's, do you need? Yeah, what's what, the owner capable of? What's the owner capable of? You know, you know it makes me think you were talking about it. I was thinking, how many times have I seen a dog come in, you know, that's been diagnosed with a with a forelimb uh, problem, but it's actually coming from neck pain, and it's not mm -hmm. actually the forelimb; it's referred pain, you know, from the neck. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. you're right. I think that that's where we come in, you know, with our with our hands, you know, in, in our exams. Our, our yeah, initial. yeah, and and we use our hands to assess yeah. and examine, but we also use them as a huge part of our treatment. Right. And right. Um, you know, so again, it's a skill that it's honed over time. It's an art. We always talk about the art and science because it's all evidence-based scientific techniques that we're applying. Mm -hmm. um, I know that, that people in the past, I would say, you know, when I was studying physical therapy for people, many of the studies to our chagrin were done with animals. Right, right. And yeah. You know, so so it's like, well, duh, if we prove with an animal that it works for people, then let's reverse that and let's know that it, yeah, that it works with, with animals. And, you know, we were talking about exercise and, and I think the first thing that I think about is function 
mm-hmm. and what it takes to optimize function, uh, whether it's a person or a pet. And many times that requires determining if there's pain. And if there's any pain, that pain needs to be minimized. Because if you're hurting, you're not going to be able to do anything. You're not, you know, again, thinking about you yourself, you're not going to be able to focus. You're not going to be able to work. You're not going to be able to do your sleep. Sleep is a huge one and getting restful sleep. Um, You may not be able to do your daily hygiene, you know, take a shower. Um, You may need help getting out of bed. Um, You know, I think about those back pain individuals that, you know, it's incapacitating. So the first thing that we all do is determine if there's pain, where is that pain coming from and how can we reduce it? So then we can do other things that in the long term will prevent that pain from coming back. So it might be a stretch or it might be, you know, strengthen this and creating balance and symmetry throughout the the body. But yes, it's a whole picture thing. Um, One of the reasons, Kathy, that I changed careers is that with people, our healthcare system has really become a sick care system. You know, we wait until there's a problem and then address it. Mm -hmm. And we need to shift that mindset and think truly about it being healthcare, focusing on prevention and wellness. And because, at least when I started out, much of the animal care was not insurance based. Mm -hmm. So so I could do whatever I want. And I still do um, Mm -hmm. to to prevent injury, to work on wellness, I couldn't get paid for that as a physical therapist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so we, you know, like I said, working with little Aurora at seven months and preventing injury, working on that wellness piece of it. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, all the changes that that go along with aging and, and, you know, what is a good death and how do we die with dignity and, Mm -hmm. you know, maximizing function to the very end and that independence. Right, right. Yeah, that's what we all want. So the principles are very similar, really. Uh, very yeah. similar. Very similar. Very similar. Yeah. yeah, I hope I've provided enough examples that uh, that it's clear. So, Chris, let's circle back a little bit to the communication piece about um, with regards to your your animal patients. Sure, sure. And I think when we did our podcast about pain, we talked a lot about the signals right. uh, that that animals will will give us. And it's just a matter of tuning in and learning what those signals are and, and what they mean. Like we talked about yeah. earlier with pediatrics and so forth. So, you know, their body language is so important and, uh, you know, being able to interpret that. And I think one thing, Kathy, you, you took the fear-free certification. Right. And so that's all about uh, listening and getting buy-in from your pet. You know, how do you interpret what their reaction is to what you're doing and should you proceed forward or not and making things as comfortable and again, positive as, as can be. So uh, there's both a program for uh, veterinary practitioners and certification and fear free as well as it's called like happy homes or something like that for, for pet yeah. owners. So really yeah. good information there. So Kathy, I remember years ago, I was working with a trainer with my little dog and and this just always stuck with me. And she said, you know, when you when you ask your dog to sit, which is, you know, like number one thing we teach our puppies and dogs, right, for manners, she said, it should be an invitation, you know. So, you know, Fluffy, sit. 
She said, how many people do you hear going, <laughs> and she goes, would you to somebody's house? And, and they're like, you know, hey, you know, have a seat. Let's chat. Or would you? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think oftentimes putting ourselves in our, our pet shoes, um, we can really change how we speak to them, you know, mm-hmm. slowing down, talking softly. Um, you know, there's a time and a place for a sharp tone and so forth. But, you know, it, it is a lot about body language, moving slowly, um, taking our time, asking permission, but just being really, really aware of all of all of those things. And isn't that the whole joy of having the pet or the pet patient is making that connection. That's the joy in it. Yeah. I want I want my dog to trust me and I want to have this bond and relationship with him and I don't want it to be broken down with with harsh, you know, behavior on my end, harsh correction, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point of it is to have the joy and connect. Yeah. That's the whole point. And, and again, I think it's a realization thing. Like people don't even know that they're doing these things, you know, they're just right. 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 without thought or, you know, mimicking, you know maybe their parents or whatever in their relationship, you know, and so it carries through and, you know, but really just taking a pause, stepping back. And when your dog isn't, shall we say, complying, it's probably something we're doing, not, (laughs) you know, it's not their fault. And um, so, you know, that I just, in our world, Kathy, of rehabilitation, we have to be so, so cognizant of that. Even you know, when we use modalities, you know, again, mm-hmm. like getting into an underwater treadmill, terrifying that must be. Right. Right. So for a dog to go in and be closed in this box and water starts to fill up from underneath. So we yep. use, you know, a treadmill that has some water in the bottom covering the belt and they walk on it in the water. We get a lot of bang for our buck. It's a, one of the gold standards of, of rehab. But again, just don't assume that they're just going to go in there and be like, da, 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 da. this is just funny, <laughs> you know? So, and the other thing I think about too, when we first started out in our career, I remember uh, we were taught how to use electrical stimulation. And I didn't even use that as a, a therapy much for my human patients mm-hmm. because it hurts. Right. You're putting an electrode on That's a muscle mm-hmm. where it, you know, typically where the nerve dives into the muscle. So it activates, it falsely creates a muscle contraction right. through the use of electricity. You know, think about if you've ever been shocked, you know, touched an electric fence, oh. uh, you know, it, it's very noxious. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons I have, I can't even tell you the last time I've used these fence. Um, I didn't feel like I got great results from it. Uh, I couldn't communicate with the pets and say, you know, this is why we're doing it. It's only going to hurt for 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and and switch to things like using light therapy, photobiomodulation, right, which has right. no negative effect whatsoever. Right, we don't have right. to shave them like we do with ultrasound or e-stem. Uh, they don't get wet like they do in hydrotherapy. It's just mm-hmm. a great modality for the reasons that we're we're talking right. about. Well, thank you, Chris. We learned a lot today about the parallels between uh, you know physical therapists and their human patients versus their their animal patients. So. Is there anything you would like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I mean, I think the the big 
message is that if you as a pet owner or veterinary professional have ever had physical therapy for yourself or know somebody who has, you know, think about advocating for your pet through the use of, of physical rehabilitation. Uh, we can treat so much and help so much. And we are, you know, develop that relationship. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I became a physical therapist as opposed to a doctor, because I thought, you know, a doctor may see their, their patient once a year, you know, for an annual exam and mm -hmm. all is going well. But as a PT, we would see our patients regularly. And I like developing that rapport and that relationship as we've alluded to. Yeah. So, you know, there, it's not, you know, some of the, again, negative raps that we get out there is, you know, no pain, no gain, physical terrorists, pain Oh my torture. gosh, I had to do that one. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. PT stands for pain and torture. Um, and that is so far from the, the truth. So I guess that would be my biggest take home message is that physical therapy does not hurt, should not hurt. And that we're all about, you know, restoring and maintaining function and minimizing pain. And we can do the same uh, with our, our animal friends. And who doesn't want that? And who doesn't want that? Thank you, Chris. Can you let people know where they can find you? Well, certainly. Um, the only place you can find me is through this podcast mm -hmm. on credibility. So uh, I'm trying to slow down a little bit. Um, but uh, I for that reason, I, I don't have a website or anything like that, but uh, people uh, still manage to, to seek me out, which I love. <laughs> and uh, But the, the best place to find me is on uh, the Petability Podcast. Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Kathy. Bye. I hope I didn't disappoint. <laughs> you did not disappoint. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. For more information about Kathy's books and living with blind dogs, please visit EnableYourPet.com. Thank you, and please tune in next time.